Well, it's good to be here with you and to be able to share with you. Um, I, I, uh, I am digging here at Queensland Theological College and so excited about the launch of the uh, Gospel Coalition at the uh, principal. Principal. You're either the principal, right? Okay. The principal, as you know in the States, is the is elementary school leader. Uh, and so we don't, we don't have principals. As a matter of fact, if you go to the principal, you're in trouble. And I, so I spent a lot of time there. Um, but, uh, but I'm so excited about the launch of the uh, Gospel Coalition here in Australia. And uh, glad, glad to be here uh, in, in Queensland and, and, um, and in Brisbane. The, um, and also, too, uh, I hope you're aware of uh, the work that Geneva Push is doing. Um, Geneva Push is a subtly named organization, very related to its theological convictions. Um, but it's, uh, it's got a passion for working with all different denominations um, in helping to evangelize uh, churches into existence. I love that phrase. I was just interviewed by the um, Australian... Uh, Bible Society magazine, Eternity, Eternity, and um, and I mentioned that that I love that phrase, evangelizing churches into existence is a key thing. So so you know I, I, you don't know me, and um, and I know that sometimes the last thing you want to hear is a person from uh, from America telling you to do or think anything, uh, and so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try to um, talk about some topics that are both theological and then practical, and sort of move around. You know, I want you to know we do we do research in Australia, and part of the research we do is kind of looks at the differences in churches. Uh, my my field, my focus, is in English speaking Western culture. I have a PhD in missiology, um, and and uh, and I have a demon before that in an, in an area of of pastoral leadership. So I like to kind of combine the ideas of pastoral leadership with effective ministry in Western culture. So that's sort of my uh, my focus. So, um, so we'll kind of walk through that, but at the same time, I, I, I want you to know that I appreciate and I'm aware of some of the differences that, that, are, that, are, that are culturally evident. Uh, you know, we do research in the UK, uh, Canada, a lot of research in Canada. My wife's Canadian, by the way, so, um, so she's, uh, she's the better half and part of the Commonwealth. And the kids actually recently, you know, Canada recently changed their laws, and there's a great video, because my kids were born in the U.S., there's a great video that... Uh, that on April 16th, uh, 20, I think it was 2011, they changed the laws that basically the children of uh, expat Canadians, Canadians living outside the country, are, are now automatically citizens. So I came in to show my kids the video, and I said, by the way, you're all, you're all Canadians now. And, uh, and two of them were, like, super excited, right? The two actually who've been to Australia. But the oldest one was, do we have to move? Like, are we going now? It's like, no, no, they just... She was like, I don't, but I don't want to be. I don't, but it's good. They're nice people. Peace, order, and good government. They're nice people. And, um, and so, so, but we do a lot of research in the Canadian context, uh, and as I mentioned, some in Australia as well. I've been here speaking um, on Sunday. I was at York Street. Well, I think it's called St. Philip's York Street, Churchill, Anglican. Three names, one church. Uh, it's very Trinitarian. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really understand why it has so many names. Uh, I did the, uh, the 16... What, what's the year of the, the first Anglican prayer book? Not the 1662. I did the 1662 Anglican prayer book service. Had a great time. Preached the homily. Dropped the mic. Walk off the stage. Uh, okay, no, I didn't do any of that. But I did. I mean, I did preach the service. And then we did an event in partnership with Effective Ministry at uh, Moore College. And so, and yesterday, last two days we were with CMA. So I've had the privilege of engaging some different denominational traditions. I'm, I am interested uh, who's here. I know th- this school is affiliated with the uh, Prezies. Yes? Yes? Okay. So Presbyterians. And uh, are there, how many of you are Presbyterian here in the room? Okay. Like, like a lot of you. 
like a lot of you. So, uh, okay, this should be interesting. Uh, this is the most Presbyterians I've had, the pre- percentage-wise. It's, I've had a lot of Sydney Anglicans, and when there are Sydney Anglicans in the room, they don't like others to be there. And so, um, <laughs> so usually it's just the Sydney Anglicans. Um, can I say that out loud? Don't tweet that. Um, speaking of that, how many, how many Anglicans are here? How many, do we have any Anglicans? Just a few Anglicans. Glad. They just left. They're all offended, and they're leaving. Um, and, and, so, and so do we have uh, Baptists? How many Baptists? Oh, lots, a bunch of, a bunch of Baptists. Uh, I'm a Baptist, and so glad, glad you're here, and the rest of you are not far from the kingdom. Uh, and uh, do we have any Pentecostals? Just raise your hand. You're used to that. Uh, just, just one? Just one Pentecostal? Wow. Are you uh, ACC? Or are you, which, which Pentecostal group? ACC. ACC. Shouldn't you be at the meeting in Gold Coast right now? Okay, they, don't tell, they, they didn't tell you about the meeting, so that tells maybe your ACC-ness is not that certified. Um, but glad, you, glad you're here. Glad you're here. Uh, welcome. Um, and and what, what other groups might we have? Salvation Army. We have Salvation Army folks here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, like a whole bunch of Salvation Army folks. That is so great. Glad, glad you're here. Now, the Church of Christ here is not the same as the Restoration Movement Church of Christ in, the, in, in, our, in our side of the, of the ocean, is it? How many Church of Christ? Okay, so, so when you're Church of Christ, is that restoration movement? No, okay, that's a different thing. Okay, so what's it like? Are you like Baptist, just happy, or what, are, what is it? Um, so. Very similar to Baptist. Okay, okay, good, good, good. And who, anyone else? Yeah? Uniting Church. Uniting Church. So glad you're here. Last time I was here in this region, I did the evangelism conference for the Uniting Church at uh, Stu Cameron's church at New Life Uniting. You know Stu? Did I say is it Stu Cameron? I think it's his name. And so I had a great, had a great time. He's a, he's a good bloke. Uh, and so I'm trying to blend. I'm trying to blend in. Do you reckon? Uh, but anyway. Um, so do, 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 do my, but yeah, I appreciate that. Well, last, you know, I'm, here for, I'm here for seven days. I flew in. I arrived last Saturday. And I leave uh, Saturday, Anzac Day. So, um, and, and seven days. What, what kind of idiot plans seven days when there's a 12 or 11 or 10 hour time difference? I need to come here for a month. So my plan next time is to come for a month, bring the whole family, and try to blend a little bit better. And uh, and actually discover more of Australian culture and heritage. But good. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you're here, and hopefully we can encourage one another. That's that's my only desire, is that we might. Uh, Hebrews 10:24 says, "Provoke one another to love and good deeds," and that's my desire. I want to start with a bit of a theological construct that I think would be helpful. Some of you are, are, are students. Just have interest. How many of you are students here at this institution? A whole bunch of you. So this room's going to be pretty much empty after the tea. Uh, so let's get it all done right now. I'm going to start talking a little bit faster so we can get this all covered. Because um, <laughs> after tea, we're forming a small group. Um, so what I want to talk a little bit about is, is, uh, is kind of an underlying theological premise about how we might engage in the, the mission of God. And I want you to know a couple of things. If you're students and you're Australians, there's two things that I've learned. Number one, uh, students are always like, well, what about this? And, and that's a good question to have. And Australians um, love the idea, and this Scott taught me this, of, um, of the tall poppy syndrome. And so no matter what I say, you're going to find fault in it, and I love that about your culture. I think that's amazing, because I find fault in your culture for that. Um, so, I mean, the, it's like a cycle of despair. Um, 
But I think it's great. I think it's great. Um, so, but with that being said, what I want to do is I want to walk through this. But I want to say to you, this is something that's not everything. I'm not trying to answer every theological or missiological question. I want to talk about how the mission of God relates to engaging culture for the cause of Christ. It's going to require some theology. Um, and some theology you might nuance or say, well, I would say it this way. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. And also, this is the, if you're a communications person, maybe you're studying at the college for communications, uh, don't do what I'm about to do on one singular slide. This is the worst example of visual slideology that has ever ultimately been presented. But let's start talking about the mission of God. John 20, 21 is sort of the uh, a foundational passage that a lot of people who talk about being on mission use. In, in John 20, 21, Jesus, after 40 times in the Gospel of John, saying he's been sent by his Father. He then says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Using the Greek word, aute, which means in the same manner. So he says, in the, in the, in the way that the Father has sent me, uh, I'm sending you. Not for the same purpose, right? The purpose of the believer is not to die on the cross for the sins of a broken and lost world. But, but Jesus came, and then Jesus sent. Jesus came. And then Jesus sent. And I want to talk about how the mission relates to both God and God's glory and how we might undergird all of our discussions today with these theological uh, ideas. Uh, The first I want us to acknowledge is, is that God is the source of the mission. The mission is actually rooted in the identity of God himself. And this is a key theological idea for those of you who are, who are students. And, and I'm going to do a little more. Uh, I might occasionally throw some history that I don't normally do in this seminar. But for those of you students, you might recognize this language uh, from a lot of different places. But it's kind of become the evangelical consensus on mission is that mission is rooted in the identity of God himself. It's actually uh, the first person in the modern era who used the term in that way was actually Karl Barth. Now, Karl Barth, um, I, I make some of you nervous if you know a little history. Uh, you, you can be right on some things and wrong on other things as well. But the Bardian idea was then picked up and has now become the evangelical belief, the evangelical norm that pretty much everyone would say, actually beyond evangelical, I mean, it, you'd find this in conciliar missions and Catholic missions. Um, the idea is very clearly widely held that there is a biblical function, truth, acknowledgement that mission is rooted in the identity of God himself. So in other words, uh, the church doesn't have a mission, but God's mission has a church. It starts with God as God on a mission. So God has a mission is a key theological premise under which everything else that I will talk about today uh, flows. So what is that mission? Well, a lot of different ways that people can explain it. And again, I told you before that that you can't talk about this without beginning with some theological premises that uh, or beliefs that that undergird it. And you might nuance this a little differently, but for our discussion and using um, for this presentation, I'll say this: that God's on a mission to be glorified by making Himself known. God's on a mission to be glorified by making Himself known. It is God's design and desire that He would be glorified by making Him by revealing by making Himself known. So remember, God is on a mission. Right, And if his mission is to be glorified by making himself known, we'd expect that to even be started in creation. Right, So if God's on a mission, that, that mission starts in creation. And part of the intent of creation is that it might glorify God. Now, uh, Psalm 19, the psalmist writes in Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2, "...the heavens declare the glory of God." 
and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. So, so creation itself does give glory to God, but the glory that it gives is not the full glory that God designs and desires. So God created uh, men and women, and in creating men and women, they might glorify him. And in, however, not because God was surprised by such, but in, in, in the history of redemption, the fall actually occurs. And as the fall occurs, it impacts and breaks creation. Creation is broken and lost. Creation and creatures are broken and lost. The world itself is now broken and lost by the effect and by the impact of sin. So, so God's on a mission. It started in creation. The fall occurs. The world becomes, two key words we'll use a lot in this presentation, uh, broken and lost. And so... That's not a surprise to God, but in His great love for us, He sends the Son and He sends the Spirit. God sends the Son into a broken and lost world. God sends the Spirit into a broken and lost world. Why? Because God, by His very nature, is a sender. God is on a mission. God sends in response to His missional nature. One of the books that was so helpful for me is you maybe want to do research or maybe you want to learn more as a student um, about the missional conversation. It might be uh, a book by Francis DuBose. Francis DuBose wrote a book called God Who Sends in 1983. It's the first book that uses the term missional in the way that we use it today. And and later, uh, Chuck Van Engen would write another follow-up book. And this is all in the missiology field, and I, I recognize that that's not all of you here to be students of mission and missiology. Um, and, and, and so a lot of people mean different things. You're saying, well, hey, what do you mean by missional? Well, uh, a group of us actually wrote a manifesto about what we mean by missional. Um, uh, Tim Keller, uh, Alan Hirsch, Linda Berquist, uh, J.D. Greer, Eric Mason, me, several others, uh, we put together a missional manifesto. But, but really, I mean, we, we're beginning with the very clear idea that mission is indeed rooted uh, in the identity of God himself. God is the impulse for mission because God is on a mission. But his mission has a rule. And that, that rule of his mission is called the kingdom. So God is on a mission, the rule of his kingdom, that place where the reign of God is evident and real, where his creation and, and, and the creatures that he has created and, and, and the people that he has created rightfully submit to the leader, loving leadership of a good, holy, sovereign, and perfect God. And so, so God is on a mission. That, that reign of God is the expression of that. So God, God sends his son to establish the kingdom here. Now, this is key. God sends his son to establish his kingdom. Now, what I preach on the gospel reading at uh, St. Philip's this Sunday was actually on Mark 1.15, and actually Mark 1.15 all the way to like verse 48 or something like that, very long uh, gospel reading. But it was a beautiful expression that because at the beginning of such, Jesus says the time is fulfilled, this is Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled uh, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And then it goes on and talks about the effect of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. It talks about healing of diseases. It talks about the preaching of the gospel. It talks about the change in context that comes because the king has come. So the, the reign of God, God sends his son to establish the kingdom. The kingdom came in a way that's different than the people in the day expected. And so maybe, uh, LT, maybe answer your question, well, well, what's my favorite book? And I said subversive kingdom, because the kingdom comes in a subversive way. So this kind of builds on that. The kingdom comes in a subversive way. It subverts the rebellion of a broken and lost world by by the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Now, but it's important to note that there's never been a time when God is not sovereign. 
know, Christians debate how the sovereignty of God uh, relates to, say, human uh, response, human will, uh, free will, free agency. People debate that, and, and, and I, I get that theological debate. Uh, but whether or not God is sovereign is not a debate between Christians and non-Christians. It's a debate between Christians and, and excuse me, not a debate between Christians. It's a debate between Christians and non-Christians. In other words, um, if you don't believe that God has been king, you have to deny the totality of the scriptures. Uh, in Psalm 139, it speaks about that from his throne in heaven, God's always ruled over over all things. He's, he's always ruled. But what happens is something different. Some expression of this is different. And Jesus says it, the kingdom of heaven has come near. So it's a geographic distribution, a, geogra- a geographic change, that the kingdom of heaven is now evident, invisible, but evident in a broken and a hurting world. So Jesus comes, right? The kingdom has a king, a people, and a way of life. The kingdom has a king, a people, that's the redeemed, and a way of life. And so Jesus comes establishing his kingdom in the midst of a broken and lost world in rebellion to the rightful rule of a good, holy, sovereign, and perfect God. So what does Jesus do? He comes saving. Jesus comes saving in the midst of a lost world. Now, the Baptists here in the Church of Christ here and, 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 our, and our lone Pentecostal representative, um, that they, they, they're probably more comfortable using the term saved. Maybe others will be as well. Uh, saved is a biblical term, but so is being born again, or so is uh, as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believed on his name. But, but I'm going to use the term saving because when we recognize the world is lost and broken, two key words, as I said earlier, the world is both lost and broken. If the world is lost and broken, Jesus came saving the lost. He says that in Luke 19.10. He says, I came to seek and save the lost. And so Jesus comes seeking and saving, but saving the lost, and he does, does that by defeating sin and death. Remember Romans 8, 3, right? What the law could not do, since it was only the flesh, uh, God did. He condemned, he, he, he defeated, if we use that term here, the sin in the flesh, because he sent his son in the flesh as a sin offering. And so, so Jesus comes saving. Now, now he, he, he comes saving by defeating sin and death and by redeeming a people through the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to I want to stop here for just a moment, and I want to spend a few minutes because um, you know, I, and I, I'm guessing this is I mean, it's a pretty theologically conservative uh, audience. But one of the things that when you talk a lot about the kingdom of God among people who know history, they get nervous sometimes because the last time people talked a lot about the kingdom, they lost the focus on the cross. Historically, it took place in the beginning of the last century. Um, a lot, of, a lot of talk about the kingdom of God. There was also this utopian idea that, that we were going to come into a great era where poverty would be eradicated, where war would come to an end. And it's so ironic that the last century would be such a warlike and such a, such a, such a many ways and many times an evil and broken century. But at the beginning of the last century, they were quite convinced, and Christians were quite convinced, that what was about to happen was going to, uh, was going to usher in the... The, the, the good end of all things, the final end of all things. And so, so they talked more and more about the kingdom of God in terms of fixing brokenness in the world. And they talked less and less about the kingdom of God as in addressing lostness in the world. And so what happened was, uh, the end result is, is that uh, people sort of moved away from proclaiming the gospel and instead talked about doing good deeds works of mercy in the name of the gospel. And, 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 that, and that doesn't end well. I mean, that doesn't end well historically. Later, that kingdom of God movement 
would be renamed, kind of post the movement, would be renamed the social gospel movement. So we're kind of familiar with that uh, historically. And, and, and here's the thing. I'm actually of the belief. Now, Subversive Kingdom is a book that is a lot about uh, showing the love of Jesus to a broken and hurting world. The mission uh, includes both gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration. We live out the implications of the gospel and we minister to the hurting. I'm deeply concerned that we are known for ministering the hurting and we are ministering to the, to the hurting. But, you know, we even see today kind of a, a sense with the, with the reemergence of that. All of you have probably noticed in the last 10 to 15 years that your churches and your people are talking a lot more about the hurting. And that's praise God for that. That's not bad. But we have to also recognize to be careful, not careful in that we shouldn't do it more, but careful that we shouldn't proclaim the gospel less. And, and therein is the challenge. You say, well, Ed, is that a danger? Sure it is. I mean, I bet you've seen on Facebook this, um, this quote attributed often to St. Francis. The quote goes like this. Preach the gospel at all times. Uh, when necessary, use words. How many of you have seen that somewhere on social media? Yeah, lots, almost all of you. Um, if you haven't seen it, we've got to get your Facebook. You have Facebook in Australia, right? I'm just, <laughs> just checking. I didn't know you didn't have Netflix until a couple of weeks ago. And now all of you look tired because you've been binge-watching shows <laughs> that you probably shouldn't be watching. But that's another story uh, for another day. So, um, but in the midst of the world's evangelical Christian world today, there's a lot of people who are finding an appeal to that idea that preach the gospel at all times when necessary use food. Uh, use, use, uh, <laughs> actually, saying preach the gospel at all times when necessary use words is a lot like saying feed the hungry at all times when necessary use food. Uh, by its very nature, it's well, two, two problems with the quote. Number one, St. Francis never said it, so there's that. Uh, but remember the words of Winston Churchill, uh, don't believe all those quotes you see attributed to me on the Internet. Um, the, 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 second, the second, he never said it. Um, pretty much historians are pretty universally agreed with that. Um, number two, it's really bad theology. Um, it, it undermines the fact that Jesus ties together in Luke 24, 46, he says the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead in the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Notice how Jesus links these things that fundamental to the nature of the gospel is the telling of the gospel, is the proclamation of the gospel. And so, so it's, a, it's an erroneous theological view that we can, uh, we can, we can uh, not... Proclaim the gospel by not using without using words. Now, I want you. I want you to know that I, I get that people say we got to live the gospel, and I'm not. There are people who kind of have appointed themselves as the police to correct everybody who says live the gospel. Can I just tell you? I'm not sure that's really helpful to spend your life correcting everybody who uses the phrase um, live the gospel. Um, let's not. Actually, the Bible says more than one occasion to obey the gospel, um, and but we want to be careful. At the end, at, at its core, the gospel is not you do. The gospel is Jesus did. And what Jesus did on the cross for our sin and in our place causes new life to come. And, 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 and at the end of the day, we get a picture that he defeats sin and death. Um, he redeems the people through the forgiveness of sins. And we want to recognize that there's always a danger of missing that. That's one of the reasons that I think it's important that you can't go from the mission to the kingdom without going through the cross. If you, if, if you miss that, you miss just fundamental principles and truths about the gospel itself. There's no kingdom without a cross. Now, I don't know what that means uh, for the few, as, as, if everyone sort of just rediscovering this, and I think it's good. I think a renewed, robust kingdom focus 
is a good thing for the church, but I just think we want to be wise. I don't know the future of the church. I'm, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I work at a nonprofit organization. Um, but, but I want you to hear very clearly that we need an emphasis on saving. But I also want you to hear very clearly that Jesus came serving. In, in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, he says, The Spirit of the Lord has upon, come upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news. And he talks about the poor, the captive, and the blind. And, and you, would, you can't really read the scriptures without seeing a deep, uh, prevailing, obviously prevalent concern for the poor, the marginalized, and the hurting. James says, to true religion, ministering to widows um, you know, and, and, and orphans. So we see very clearly that Jesus begins the early church. Uh, Rodney Stark writes a helpful book called, uh, called um, uh, Cities of God, How Christianity Became an Urban Religion and Conquered Rome. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a professor, a uh, well-known sociologist and professor. And what he points out is, is that the great growth of the early church did not really come in the first century. Uh, most historians have probably been persuaded by this view. There was growth in the first century, but actually in the late second and early third century becomes some of the greatest growth. And those are times when, when unnamed plagues, we didn't know what to call them then, we were not sure what they were, swept the empire. And what we actually find is Roman officials writing to other Roman officials and say, these Christians take care of not only their own sick, but our sick as well. And it, it impacted the view of Christians, and there were subsequently some rather, uh, rather powerful mass conversions. So Jesus came serving, right? Jesus came saving the lost. He came serving the hurting. And if it's true that the king is both sent uh, and sender, if the king is sent and sender, what does that ultimately mean for us? How might we uh, be about this, this, uh, this response as Christians, as, as followers of Jesus? Let's take a look. So, so God is on a mission, right? He establishes the kingdom by sending the Son, but the church is certainly related and, and, and to be understood as part, having a role in this, right? So the church partners... The church partners with the king. The church partners with Jesus in his mission. Uh, the church partners with Jesus uh, in his mission. The church, a lot, a lot like Isaiah says in the Old Testament, uh, when encountering the holiness of God in Isaiah 6, he says, Here I am, Lord, send me. The church, having heard John twenty twenty one, as the Father has sent me, so send I you, says, Here I am, Lord, send us, or we are acknowledging that we are sent by Jesus, we partner with Jesus in his kingdom work in the world. So how do we, how do, we do that? What does that, that look like? Well, if Jesus came saving, we join him in gospel proclamation. Um, if Jesus came saving, we join him in gospel proclamation. Uh, that's that, that great commission, although I think all four of the commissions are pretty great, but the great commission in Matthew 28 Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. I hope today, because we journeyed together, that his name and his fame would be more widely known because we provoked one another to love and good deeds to more effectively make disciples through gospel proclamation. Um, so we, the saving, we partner gospel proclamation. He came serving, we partner with, with gospel demonstration, living out the implications of the gospel, teaching people as church scattered to show and share the love of Jesus to a broken and hurting world, to to show the love of Jesus to a, to a broken world. Don't miss that, right? 1 Peter 2.12, so they may see your good works, your good deeds, and, and give glory to God is the gospel demonstration that is to be evident in our uh, ministry and in our, in our work. So, so God sends the Son, the Son sends 
uh, establishes a kingdom. Really, the kingdom of God and the church are not identically the same. The, the kingdom births the church in its wake, and the church partners with Jesus through in his saving by gospel proclamation and is serving through gospel demonstration. God sends the Spirit. By this point, you've seen the very busy slide that I mentioned. By the time we're done, you'll beg for no more graphics. Um, but you'll see the sending. Right there, 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 is a, there is a progression moving across this slide by intent, is that God sends the Spirit. And God sends the Spirit. The Spirit comes, right? has come, and He empowers the church. We need an empowered church to live on mission in a broken and lost world. Acts 1.8 says, You shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he gathers the church, right? So the church has a gathered function. The church has a gathered function. And having that gathered function, um, we see it in Acts 2, 42 through 47, right? Um, there was awe and many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. Believers had all things together. And, 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 and we, see this, uh, we see this in the teaching about covenant community and biblical membership. I, it's on my mind. I just finished an article. I'm a columnist for a magazine. A Christian magazine just finished an article on the importance of biblical membership. So, so the church is, is gathered in biblical community. Now, now here's the deal. I, I want to say that I get right now that the church is sometimes um, hard to love. She's supposed to be this beautiful bride of Christ, and she sometimes looks more like Shrek. Um, and, and, I, and I get that, and I get that people have been burned uh, by the church. There's a significant percentage of people who are... Uh, who are actually of the people who say that they're committed Christians who don't go to church. A part of the reason they don't go to church is they've been to church. And so, so, so but here's, here's the deal. Um, you can't love Jesus and despise his wife, uh, the bride of Christ. And I think it's essential for us to remind people that the church, Ephesians 3.10 says God has chosen the church to make known his manifold wisdom in the world. And that's one of the reasons I volunteer as a pastor. Some of you are or are going to be pastors. Um, I, I, I mean, I, you know, there's a volunteer uh, role for me um, because I, I love and I need the church. I don't want to fly around the world and be kind of a motivational speaker living in a van down by the river and talking about the church. I want to, I want to make sure uh, with great clarity that I love and, and display my love for the church. God has chosen the church to make known his manifold wisdom. So that gathered church is so essential. Now, mind you, I, I think that, that there are certain things that matter in ecclesiology. We talk about marks of a biblical church, and, and I've written on that. I talk about six marks I think every church should have in every culture and every context. Um, but what I would say is this. Uh, that could be a megachurch, um, and, and God used the megachurch in Korea, right? God's using the house church in China, Let's, let's hold our models loosely and our gospel and our Christ firmly, if that makes sense. Um, because he gathers the church, and sometimes, I mean, praise God for a house. A house church can have all the marks of a biblical church. So go to a megachurch. Um, so he gathers the church. But he also scatters the church on, on mission. Um, uh, to be, and I don't just mean like, like a scattering, like a diaspora, like, like the uh, Korean diaspora, as I just mentioned, Korea, um, or, or the Armenian uh, uh, diaspora. You know, the, not just the spreading of a people around the world, but I'm literally talking about that your church might gather on Sunday and then scatter during the week to be agents of God's mission in the midst of the broken and hurting world. The end result is an, an, an empowered church, an empowered church. So, so we're okay. So we're kind of moving across the slide, but let's not end there. There's a place that this takes place, right? Uh, the context where the mission is lived out is the world, right? The, the the church is sent into the world, right? Continuing now, we're across the slide. Now, this empowered church is sent into the world. Now, rooted in the identity of God Himself, saying yes, joining Him on mission. But now, 
the church is sent uh, into the world, and what then is the church doing? The world is the context in which the mission occurs. Let me remind you again, the world is lost and broken. Remember those two words, right? The world is lost and broken. Because the world is lost and broken, he comes saving and serving. We join him, right, in his work through the love of Jesus, sharing it with the lost and showing it to the broken. And that might be a helpful phrase for you, right? Uh, Sharing and showing the love of Jesus is key. Sharing and showing the love of Jesus is key. The church is sent into the world, again, to remind you to join Jesus' mission. Remember the verse in the upper right-hand corner, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. So the church comes as a a sign and an instrument of the kingdom of God. I, I will tell you, I am fascinated in Australia by the number of signs, by your signage. I have never seen a place that has so many signs on everything. And you, you, uh, you see, and, and, and so many of them are caution signs. Uh, I spend a lot of time in Brazil. I have an office in Brazil, and we do research there. And if you go to the edge of a cliff in Brazil, there's no sign, because they think if you fall over the cliff, it's your own fault. It's a cliff. It's right there. You have signs and fences and fences beyond signs, but it does speak some of your value. See, signs point to something else. So what do the signs point to? That you deeply care in Australia about the safety of people, the well-being of your neighbor. And that's, and that's a good thing, right? So signs, like a sign, points to something else. So the church is a sign of the kingdom of God. So people look into your church and mine, right? So your people look into First Presbyterian, and they say, okay, so that's to some degree what the kingdom of God looks like. It's not a perfect representation, but in this church, marriages are, are restored, and races are reconciled, and, and lives are changed, and, and people live for something other than themselves. Second Corinthians 5, you know, and he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. And they say, oh, that's the church is a sign of the kingdom of God. Now, now, obviously, that's an aspirational goal. That's something we aspire to. A lot of churches aren't uh, being very good signage for the kingdom of God. Um, if you read my blog, not that I would expect that you do, but I blog at a, kind of our national evangelical magazine of record. It's called um, Christianity Today, and I'm sort of their, their blogger. And so uh, every Friday I put up uh, church signs of the week. And church signs of the week are, people send them to me from all over, all over the, the world, but mostly in the United States, because Americans seem to have this, this desire to put up some of the worst church signs ever. I mean, I encourage you, just Google church signs of the week, and you will just find literally, and I'm amazed. I, I think I will run out, and I never run out. And the sad thing is there are so many that I, I can't use because they're so, like, the people who put them up really clearly haven't engaged a pop culture reference in like 50 years. And I said, you can't put that on a church sign. Um, and, and, um, but we think of signs as like signs outside, right? But, but they're not. It's ultimately signs, signs inside of a kingdom that's not of this world. So the church is a sign, but it's also an instrument. So um, God's design and desire is that the church might be an instrument for his son, Jesus the Christ's kingdom work in a broken and lost world. And so, again, so, so it's an instrument in that what, when kingdom work is done, kingdom work is done by people who are uh, in the kingdom. You know, Colossians, Paul writes in Colossians 
that he has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. As kingdom citizens, we do kingdom work. Sometimes it's gospel proclamation. Sometimes it's gospel demonstration. At its simplest, we're showing and sharing the love of Jesus to a broken and hurting world as an instrument of the kingdom. There are promises that come with that. For example, um, we're an ambassador of the kingdom. Now, now there are actually two times in the New Testament that, that, Paul, that Paul, only two times the words even used, but Paul uses it both times, once in Ephesians, once in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, we are ambassadors. The we is actually referring to himself and his band of, uh, of missionaries. Uh, but Christians have historically sort of taken that and said, that, that applies to us as well. We are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf. So in the midst, because God is a sender, he sends his son who establishes his kingdom. The spirit empowers and sends the church into the world to be ambassadors in the broken and lost world. And that comes with promises, like we have the promises the church holds the keys to the kingdom. Um, and, and this is a phrase, of course, from Matthew. And Jesus says to, uh, to Peter, he, upon Peter's profession of faith, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, then what he says to him is, is partly is that you have the keys to the kingdom. So his profession of faith given to the church, Peter was speaking representatively of the disciples and representatively of the church, that the church now holds the keys to the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, what do keys do but open doors? How is the door to the kingdom open? Through the proclamation of the gospel that men and women might hear and respond by grace and through faith. So that's the keys to the kingdom. No gates will hold back the advance of the gospel. Many Christians sort of turn that passage that the, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church into a different kind of uh, a defensive passage. It's not what it is. Um, the idea here is tied into even what we've talked about earlier. It's not that there is a kind of a, we're in a circular room here, but a, uh, there's not like a fence around us and we're, the, and we're the kingdom of God, then the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. And it's not that the fence is sort of squeezing us, right? So it's kind of, you know, coming in tighter and tighter and tighter. And we're like, no, 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 the gates of hell. And we're kind of speaking it. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That doesn't make sense. Satan doesn't turn to his demons and say, let's go crush the Christians. Somebody grab a fence. Uh, it doesn't work that way. But if, on the other hand, we recognize that the world really is dead in its trespasses and sins, and if for a moment we might use this room as a symbolic representation of those who have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, and if we might indeed say a fence, so I think a better translation is the forces, but let's say there's a fence that surrounds us, what's outside of that fence is the focus of this passage. What's outside of that fence is a world that is dead in its trespasses and sins. Hades gives us a hint to that, right? The forces of Hades. So outside of that fence is a world that is dead in its trespasses and sins. And the promise of this verse is that the forces or the gates of hell will not prevail against the work, the advance of the gospel. In the midst of a broken and lost and spiritually dead world. So Jesus promised that he'll be with us always, even to the end of the age, is key and helpful and, and focal. So where do we end this? Well, God is on a mission. He sends his son who establishes the kingdom and the power of the spirit. The church is sent into the world so that God ultimately might be glorified. Remember, we said his mission is to be glorified by making himself known. So the church is redeemed for God's glory. Right, so John Piper has writes, writes a famous book, right? He talks about missions. I have the privilege of speaking at his Desiring God National Conference on this, 
on this topic of missions. And so John in there says that missions, uh, the missions still exist because worship does not exist everywhere. So, so there's still work to be done, but still the church is ultimately now being redeemed for God's glory. Ephesians 1, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, right? goes on to say, to the praise of his glorious grace. And then the mission is ultimately completed for God's glory. Now, at this point, you have to come to sort of an eschatological conclusion. Uh, and, and, and you have to have an eschatological position. Um, and so some of you are probably, uh, uh, you say ah or a millennial. Is it a millennial or a millennial? Okay. A, a millennial. A. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to blend. You need to, both, both of my options were incorrect. Ah or a, it's I. So you're a millennial. Um, you could be. I mean, some of you are a millennial. Um, some of you, yeah, there's different views. I'm, I'm pre-millennial, like, like, like Jesus and all the apostles. Uh, <laughs> So, um, but for the sake of this for a moment, can we just be pan-millennial? It's all going to pan out the way Jesus wants it to. Okay, now, I'm not saying that doctrine is unimportant. What, what I'm saying is, is that we would all agree that the mission is ultimately going to be completed for God's glory and all things will ultimately be restored for God's glory. And that broken and lost world ultimately is restored for the glory of God. Now, in my premillennial view, it looks like it gets worse before it gets better, and then Jesus kind of shows up, big battle, lots of people in trouble, uh, and then the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our God. Okay, whatever your view, I mean, there are different views together. Some of you would share that view. Uh, here's what I want you to hear. Right, so I, 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 and, I, and I actually, I, I hold my eschatology probably pretty loosely, but here's what I would say to you. To get to this, okay, from here, all I know is this. I'm going to continue to join Jesus on his mission until he comes back and finishes it. So that, that's something that all Christians go. I'm going to continue to join him on his mission until Jesus comes back and finishes it. And so I think the key for us is to acknowledge this mission. And today we're going to spend some time. I see many of you taking pictures. Did I give you permission? He doesn't care. He's like, I'm taking more pictures. Maybe I'm going to stand up and take pictures, American. <laughs> you yank. Uh, that's fine. It's fine. You feel free. Um, but there's a whole bunch more you're missing because i got more slides. Um, but here's the thing. Today, we're going to spend some time, a lot of time here, talking about how the church can be more effective in the world. Uh, we, 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 I'm understanding we voted on topics, and there were certain topics that were chosen. They're a bit disparate, but we're going to weave through them in a way that I think you'll find helpful. We're going to talk about breaking barriers in churches. How do we get, why do we get stuck at 35, 75, 125, 200? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how to break through uh, those barriers. We're going to talk about disciple-making, how to create effective disciple-making strategies that produce robust disciples who live on mission. And a lot of that's going to be basically how does the church live effectively on mission in the world? But what I want to say to you before we do that and before we get there is, is this has to be rooted in a God-centered, gospel-driven approach. So yeah, we're going to spend time uh, here, right? We're going to spend time here. But I want you not to miss that we start here. That mission is rooted in the identity of God himself. And when we understand the gospel, when we understand Jesus' mission, and we say yes to joining Jesus on mission, then we ask questions about how we might we do it more effectively so that he might receive his due glory in our lives and in our churches. I'm going to wrap it up there, turn it over to questions. And I don't know if I went long or short or whatever, because five minutes of questions. That's all I have is five minutes of questions. You're a difficult man to work with.
My daughter thinks he looks like Wolverine, though, which I don't see it. But he's going around telling everyone, I look like Wolverine now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was filmed in Australia, was it not? Wasn't that filmed in Sydney? The latest one. The latest one, yeah. Good. Uh, we have a microphone, and we'll throw it open to you for questions, and happy to, happy to share and answer anything I can. Pace yourselves. In other words, we're so desperate if you have any question. If you have a fashion question, if you have a weight loss question, anything, happy to answer them. Is the mic on? Yeah. Yeah, right for the Pentecostal guy. Puts his hand up quickly, as well you should. Can we just call, do you have a name other than Pentecostal guy? Ben, the Pentecostal guy. I like it. I like it. Um, I guess uh, due to like the postmodern psyche, um, a lot of millennial Christians are very anti the church as an institution. Yeah. And they kind of favor the idea of an organic kind of church. How do you encourage people who have that sort of disposition to see the church as being an institution as a good thing? Yeah. You know, here's the thing. Part of what I do, Ben, the Pentecostal guy, is I don't spend a. Uh, I, I don't. If, if I find Christians who are struggling with institutional church. You know, one of the things we find when we survey uh, across the English-speaking Western world, people have a very negative view towards institutional religion. They don't have a negative view towards Christianity. They don't have a negative view towards Christians, overwhelmingly. The new McCrindle data in Australia says people have a generally positive view of Christians. But they don't have as positive view towards institutional church. When we ask um, Christianity Today, and again, English-speaking Western context, Christianity Today agree or disagree, is more, too, is more about, uh, about organized religion than about loving God and loving others. Okay? It's like up to 90% of the people actually will agree with that statement. Okay? And, and when the younger they are, um, it doesn't shift much. Um, now, here's the deal. Organized religion, you can tell they haven't been to church in a while because it's just not that organized. Uh, but um, that's what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, so, so maybe we're going to get better. So here's what I would say. This is one of the reasons that I'm a believer. And some of you, this would be theologically hard for you to, for you to hear. Man, I am a theological. I am okay theologically with. I think postmodernism. I, I would. I would. I think we're kind of post postmodernism. But but with with whatever the emerging cultural realities. If somebody says to me, "Man, I've given up on organized religion," I'm going to say, "Good. Don't give up on Jesus. Don't give up on his church." So go start a missional incarnational community, right? Go start. I don't have a difficulty. I don't like words before gospel. You know, if you've got a word before gospel, like social gospel, other thing, you know, makes me nervous. But if you've got words before church that are descriptive of something that holds the marks of a biblical church, you want to be an organic church, you want to be a house church, you want to be a simple church, you want to be a missional incarnational church, I'm okay with that, just like I'm okay with you being a Presbyterian church and a Pentecostal church, if it has the marks of the biblical church. So I think one of the things we're going to see is an increasing prevalence of people kind of experimenting with alternative ecclesiological forms that kind of, kind of still have a biblical basis. Now, my people, I come from a conservative denomination. When, when an alternative ecclesiological form kind of crawls out of the primordial ooze of culture, uh, we shoot it, kill it, and then autopsy it and decide if we like it. Um, but what I would say is, man, I want to give some space and place for some different expressions uh, of church. Now, I would say to you that, that I'm quite convinced of the import of institutions. Uh, I think of James Davidson Hunter's To Change the World, Andy Crouch's Culture Making, and other things. Um, that's one of the reasons I'm attached. I've been asked a hundred times, why don't you just quit an institution and go speak and write or whatever? Because I think institutions have the opportunity through their inertia to make a deeper impact than some lone individual, no matter how influential she or he might be. So, so I'm, I'm a believer in that. I want institutional churches to flourish, to be faithful and fruitful 
But what I would say is I also think we need to give space and place to say, man, there are going to be some alternative ecclesiological expressions. We're not going to look down on, we're not going to cluck our tongues. So I was recently in the States speaking at a Lutheran uh, gathering. I don't think there are any Lutherans here, so let's talk about them. Um, and Lutherans, there's different streams of Lutheranism in the States. And this is kind of the conservative. They don't like to be called evangelical because they're sacramental, but, but kind of that stream. And they graduate from these schools called these Concordias, and they all go. They have a very clear institutional mindset. So it's you go to college at a Concordia, you go to three-year seminary at a Concordia, you come out. And what they do is, like right here, you imagine this principle right here. At the end, because it's very much of a closed system, you graduate, and on the last day, the principal stands up and reads your appointment. Uh, You're going to go, and if it's like sometimes a stunning thing, like Alaska which is a bit like going to Tasmania, uh, the, uh, just, just not as bad. Um, but if you get, um, sorry, the Tassies, uh, but if you, if you, wherever you go, well, so, so these two guys, they go through the whole system, and they go to the bishop, and they say, Man, here's what we want to do. We, we don't want any money from the church. Um, we don't want to be a funded clergy from the church. We want to move to a city called Austin, in, and, and Austin in our states, in the states, is kind of this avant-garde, uh, I don't know, postmodern to use your term, uh, cultural context. They're, 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 their official and unofficial slogan for the city is keep Austin weird. Uh, and, and they say, we just want to go get jobs at Home Depot, which is a home improvement warehouse. Uh, we want to work there, and we want, to, we want to plant a church through disciple-making relationships. And the bishop says, well, no, you can't do that. He says, well, what do you mean you can't do that? Well, you've worked so hard. You know, well, we've, we've, got, we've, got to pay, we've got ways to pay off our, our loans. We're good. We just want to do this. There was no category for an alternative ecclesiological expression. So they worked, with the, we worked through it and were able to, to bring about a category. They don't use the term bishops. I'm using it, but they're technically bishops, and they call themselves bishops. It's not in this conversation. So the, the leadership, they made the shift, and they went there. That's what I want space and place for, and, and I, I'm for it. I believe in it. I think if we're going to evangelize hundreds of churches into existence across Australia, many of them are going to be bivocational. It means having two jobs, you know, a secular job. I'm not a big fan of that term. Um, but having, having two jobs, it's going to mean people doing missional, incarnational communities, organic churches, and more. So that was a long answer to your short question. I apologize. But I only went long because I was stalling because nobody else has any questions. Uh, and no, I'm just kind of passionate about the subject. Anyone else? Or are we done? Wow, that was really done. Hey, thanks to those students for those great questions.